Today's episode is the audiobook version of episode 5, Origins of the Universal Language. Episode 5, Origins of the Universal Language. When I was 7 years old, I played piano for the first time. I got a few years of piano lessons throughout primary school and did a few tediously painful exams. Once I started high school, I shifted away from the pure theoretical side of piano. Instead, I began to write my own compositions. I would write and write and write. The songs were unbelievably simple and not particularly good, but they were performing something that, at the time, I didn't realise. They allowed me to block out everything else in life and took me to a place where nothing else mattered but me and the music. It allowed my curiosity and creativity to flourish and helped me interpret the many challenges and events of life. At the time, it was just me playing piano and annoying my family with constant noise bellowing out of my bedroom. But as I grew older, I started to realise that music had a power to it that was worth exploring. As I travelled around Australia and parts of the world, it became clear that this power was shared with everyone. As much as we need to eat, drink water, have shelter and love our family, we also share in this power of interpreting and connecting with music on more than just an audible level. We don't just hear the noise, it makes us feel something. This is where I became fascinated with the term that music is our universal language. It's a phrase that's mostly widely accepted around the world. But to truly understand the concept of music being a universal language, we must step back in time and follow the journey of music interpretation. We must look at early reviews and interpretations of music, as its origins shed light on the true essence of the power that music has on us. 1826. The Ladies' Monthly Museum the earliest recorded use of the phrase, music is our universal language, was from a British publication called The Ladies' Monthly Museum in 1826. In it, the author, unknown, was writing about the then recently deceased composer, Carl Maria von Weber. Weber was hailed for being a genius and having an unprecedentedly high level of astuteness in composition of a number of instruments, vocals, polonaises, operas and the like. The author was trying to discern to its readers that there are few people in the world that can possess such a skill and set of talents. They write, quote, One of Weber's distinguishing excellencies as a composer was his adapting the sound of his airs to the sense of his words. End quote. Weber had a uniquely extraordinary way of interpreting his thoughts into sound and lyrics. This allowed for his compositions to stand out above the crowd and resonate with listeners and viewers alike. However, the publication makes an important point that despite few people being able to perform such a task, it can be interpreted and enjoyed by everyone. They write about the very true fact that some people are innately born with a sensibility to harmony, while others are completely void of it. Though whether one is able to interpret the music on a literal theoretical and harmonious basis, or whether they instead interpret it in an emotive and sensory basis, the point is that everyone can interpret it. 
Music is the bridge to humankind's sensory of imagination and creativity. The author writes, quote, The effect of musical composition is not always limited to its influence on the ear, for its loftier strains extend their magic energy over the mind, exciting its creative powers by the aid of association of ideas, end quote. The author shows the creative power of music to transcend through everyone in some way. It may be unique to them, dependent on their creative astuteness and ability to literally process sounds, but there is a universal conclusion of interpreting the sound beyond the ear and into the mind. This is why this phrase is so magnificent in its summation of music. Quote, music is the universal language of nature, end quote. It is the universal language of our species' quest for knowledge through creative thought and ideas. It is the universal language of our very manner of working out why we are here and how we can make life better for us and everyone around us. It is the universal language of our nature. 1835. Outremer, A Pilgrimage Beyond the Sea. Sir Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Whilst the first documented mention of the universal language phrase came from an unknown author, its second use was from an author much more notable. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was an American poet who lived between 1807 and 1882. He released a number of hugely popular poems and books in the 19th century and is considered to be the first real celebrity in history. Longfellow was offered the opportunity to study in Europe. He took up this opportunity and travelled through various parts of France, Spain and Italy before returning to the US. He was then offered a professorship at Harvard University, dependent on another trip back to Europe. In 1835, he visited England, Germany, Sweden and the Netherlands, before the untimely death of his first wife made him remain in Heidelberg, Germany. It was there that Longfellow wrote the book, Outre-mer, a pilgrimage beyond the sea. Outre-mer is French for overseas, or paraphrased as the land beyond the sea. The book contained a series of stories, poems, and novellas from his time overseas, particularly in France, Italy, and Spain. This book was not nearly as popular or well-received as some of his then-future works. However, it did provide an important step in the realisation of music's power across the world. Sort of. His book speaks more about the love and necessity of poetry more so than it does of music. However, his explanations of this love and necessity can be exacted to the creative art of music, or any creative art for that matter. In Longfellow's introduction to the reader in Outremer, he perfectly summarises the fears of one's personal form of creative art being brought to the many faces of the world. He writes, quote, what perils await the adventurous author who launches forth into the uncertain current of public favour in so frail a bark as this. The very rocking of the tide may overset him, or peradventure some freebooting critic, prowling about the great ocean of letter, may descry his strange colours, hail him through a grey goose quill, and perhaps sink him without more ado. Indeed, the success of an unknown author is as uncertain as the wind. When a book is first to appear in the world, says a celebrated French writer, one knows not whom to consult to learn its destiny. 
The stars provide not over its nativity. Their influences have no operation on it. And the most confident astrologers dare not foretell the diverse risks of fortune it must run. As Longfellow states, many people have many varied opinions when it comes to any creative art. An artist can work for weeks, months and years into a solitary project, pouring their blood, sweat, tears and their very essence of being into the production of a song, poem, painting, dance or sketch. Anyone that exposes themselves to the piece can be just as quick to dismiss their interest in it or care for it as they are to be exposed to it in the first place. It can only take a second for that person to decide if this author's unimaginable investment into its production is worthy of their time. In the first chapter of this series, I spoke about my love for travel and music. Indeed, these are two loves shared by a large number of the human population, both now and in times gone by. Outremer is inspired by Longfellow's travels to foreign lands over many years. He explains the ever-present idealism of what foreign lands can bring to the hearts, minds, and imaginations of anyone anywhere in the world that may feel stuck, lost, or without cause for their being. Longfellow writes, quote, The soft luxuriance of the eastern clime bloomed in the Song of the Bard, and the wild and romantic tales of regions so far off as to be regarded as almost a fairyland were well suited to the childish credulity or an age when what is now called the old world was in its childhood. Those times have passed away. The world has grown wiser and less credulous, and the tales which then delighted delight no longer. But man has not changed his nature. He still retains the same curiosity, the same love of novelty, the same fondness of romance and tales by the chimney corner, and the same desire of weaving out the rainy day and the long winter evening with the illusions of fancy and the fairy sketches of the poet's imagination. End quote. This particular extract from 1835 bears incredible relevance and importance some 185 years later. Our world is so connected, so intertwined and interwoven. The new age of technology has brought about a whole new world of opportunities, but also a world of great challenges and complex difficulties. Multiple news channels bombard us with negative events occurring around the world on our TVs. People are harassed and bullied by angry and repulsive cyber mobs on social media and the ability for impressionable people to attempt to determine their own self-worth and destiny is becoming muddier and more treacherous. For me, it could be no clearer why I have always loved music and travel. They are two constants in life that can't overly change in terms of their purity and freedom. There will always be new places to explore, new people to meet, and new cultures to embrace. There will always be songs that pull at our heartstrings and that take us to our most vulnerable realm of being through their harmonies, structures, and melodies. When traveling, it is often the local music that becomes synonymous with a memory. Quite often, when the two pure forces of music and travel combine, they can create memories that last forever and that have the potential to change someone's psyche and mindset on life. Though Longfellow was talking more about poetry than of music, he perfectly expresses this point, stating, quote, The muleteer of Spain carols with the early lark, 
amid the stormy mountains of his land. The vintager of Sicily has his evening hymn, the fisherman of Naples his boat song, the gondolier of Venice his midnight serenade, the goatherd of Switzerland and the Tyrol, the Carpathian boar, the Scottish Highlander, the English ploughboy, singing as he drives his team afield, peasant, serf, slave, all. All have their ballads and traditionary songs. Music is the universal language of mankind. Poetry, their universal pastime and delight. End quote. 1840. The Service. Henry David Thoreau. The first two documented mentions of music being the universal language by Longfellow and the publication in the Ladies' Monthly Museum don't really fully address or explain the term to the fullest extent. Not to say that they have both used it as an almost throwaway phrase, but they certainly weren't laying claim to add substance to a phrase of such enormity. This was first done instead by Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau was a modestly renowned author, but was more renowned for his outlooks on life as a transcendentalist, a pioneering conservationist, and as a philosophical abolitionist. Thoreau believed in the purity of living modestly and being connected with nature. He threw away his early life structures and moved to a small cabin in the woods near Boston, USA. His cabin had only the bare essentials, nothing too extravagant and nothing too materialistic. Thoreau worked once a week to support basic necessities that money provided, mostly food, but otherwise spent most of his days wandering through the forests, riding on his views on how people should embrace themselves through nature and not fall victim to society's impositions for career and money. At Thoreau's cabin grounds in that forest lies a quote for anyone that comes to visit in the present day. Quote, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what I had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. End quote. Thoreau's life has many teachings in the current world and indeed, personally, bear an oddly accurate relevance to my own beliefs in the world. I'm not as brave as Thoreau to shut up shop and head for a modest cabin in the woods with nothing but a bed, table, gas stove, and desk. I do battle, however, with whether purity is still alive in society and whether people are experiencing the truest version of themselves. I look to nature for clarity and perspective in a similar way to Thoreau. This has been a constant theme of my own songwriting, and I feel, to an extent, that I am consistent with my approach in life to ensuring I always allow time and space to visit areas that give me moments of purity. Thoreau writes, quote, Live in each season as it passes, breathe the air, drink the drink, taste the fruit, and resign yourself to the influence of the earth. End quote. There is a purity and realness to resigning yourself to the influence of the earth. Anything from waking up and going to sleep to the tune of the sun sitting still and watching the waves crash on the shoreline, admiring the imposing beauty from the top of a mountain, and looking up to the stars at night to reaffirm just how small you are in comparison to the inexplicable concept of time and space, yet how important, amazing, and significant your life is. In his 1840 essay entitled The Service, Thoreau explains this concept of purity and realness by linking the virtues of music to the infant 
In his 1840 essay entitled The Service, Thoreau explains this concept of purity and realness by linking the virtues of music to the individual, to God, to nature, and the wider universe. His beautiful words touch on the power music has within all of us, that all elements of the universe combined together are a song in which we all play our own part. First, Thoreau comments on the individual's ability to create their own song in sync with the universe. Quote, The brave man is the sole patron of music. He recognises it for his mother tongue, a more mellifluous and articulate language than words, in comparison with which speech is recent and temporary. It is his voice. His language must have the same majestic movement and cadence that philosophy assigns to the heavenly bodies. The steady flux of his thought constitutes time in music. The universe falls in and keeps pace with it, which before proceeded singly and discordant. End quote. As a musician, one of the main purposes that I write music for is to express my thoughts, feelings, and emotions better than I could otherwise do in normal speech or conversation. I know I'm not alone in this sentiment as a songwriter. As a listener to music, I feel the power that music has to reinforce or affirm a feeling that I am having at the time. I know I am not alone in this sentiment also. Thoreau's comments on music's ability to be a more mellifluous and articulate language than words is a beautiful summation of the emotive power of music, both to writer and listener. Thoreau continues with his philosophy of the relationship between the rhythms and pulses of the universe with the individual. Quote, To the sensitive soul, the universe has her own fixed measure, which is its measure also, and as this, expressed in the regularity of its pulse, is inseparable from a healthy body, so is its healthiness dependent on the regularity of its rhythm. In all sounds, the soul recognizes its own rhythm, and seeks to express its sympathy by a correspondent movement of the limbs. When the body marches to the measure of the soul, then is true courage an invincible strength. End quote. Thoreau breaks down the complexities of life to a simple yet poignantly beautiful ideology. The ideology is that the beating of our heart provides us with one of music's most important structures, a rhythm. This is more than just a beat to keep time to though. This is the very rhythm of our life, the very beat to which we march towards our fate and destiny. The beating of our heart is the connection between body and soul. Harnessing the power of moving to the rhythm of our soul gives us extraordinary purpose and direction in life. Quote, A man's life should be stately march to an unheard of music, and when to his fellows it may seem irregular and inharmonious, he will be stepping to a livelier measure which only his nicer ear can detect. There will be no halt ever, but at most a marching on his post, or such a pause as is richer than any sound, when the deeper melody is no longer heard, but implicitly consented to with the whole life and being. He will take a false step never, even in the most arduous circumstances, for then the music will not fail to swell into greater volume and rule the movement it inspired. End quote. Thoreau even relates the religious ideologies of the universe's creations back to music. Quote, There is as much music in the world as virtue. All things obey music as they obey virtue. It is the herald of virtue. It is God's voice. 
In it are the centripetal and centrifugal forces. The universe needed only to hear a divine melody that every star might fall into its proper place and assume its true sphericity. End quote. Music has always been an inseparably important concept with religion. This is a topic that will be explored in greater detail in future. For now, though, Thoreau relates the creation of the universe, stars, planets, people, and all, to being a result of God's voicings through music. God, being a force for good and virtue in Thoreau's eyes, provided the divine melody for all energy to move in the direction of creating this beautiful planet in this beautiful universe for us to enjoy and cherish. In all of Thoreau's summations of music in the service, he is definitely the first user of the universal language of music phrase to really bring meaning to the universal part of that phrase. He links music to the individual's connection between body and soul and the subsequent rhythm that guides them to achieving the truest version of themselves in sync with the universe. He explains music's beauty and its power going beyond words and normal speech and even associates music with the religious creation of the world and the flow of nature and the universe. Above all, Thoreau demonstrates that no matter how you look at it, music is a force for good. He writes, quote, In a world of peace and love, music would be the universal language. End quote. Other references and modern day use. Since the early mentions in the 19th century, the consideration of music as a universal language has grown in popularity. Through Longfellow, Thoreau, and the publication in the Ladies' Monthly Museum, the phrase has grown at supporting themes, including the premises that Music can be interpreted by anyone to some extent. Music is the bridge to humankind's sensory of imagination and creativity. Music is a universal language of nature. Music unites people from all different backgrounds and cultures. Music can become synonymous with memories, travelling or otherwise. Music connects our body to our soul. Music is the universal language of mankind. Music is an innate rhythm within all of us that connects us to the universe. Music has a power that goes beyond words and normal speech. And music is the universal language in a world of peace and love. In a review of two different orchestras, Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw brought the universal language phrase back into the limelight. He was analysing and contrasting the differences between the orchestra of Manchester and Lancashire. These two regions brought about different dialects in the vocals of the orchestral pieces, and Shaw even commented on the different styles that drummers had in each orchestra. He wrote in his review, quote, Thus, though music is to be a universal language, it is spoken with all sorts of accents. End quote. Again, this was written with less of a focus on the actual phrase itself, rather it was more about the soothing Lancashire accent compared to a Cockney one. This linguistic analysis was also brought up in a music review in 1949 by an American called Alan Lomax. Lomax was also a folklorist, archivist, a writer, scholar, political activist, oral historian and filmmaker. In his music review entitled Tribal Voices in Many Tongues, Lomax was negatively critiquing some works that he had heard. He wrote, quote, I suspect it was on a tourist visit to Naples in the 19th century that some sentimental literary gentleman opined music is a universal language. 
This absurd notion has bedeviled collectors of folk and primitive music ever since. I only wish I could hold the author's head firmly against the bell of my loudspeaker while I played him a series of albums. Soft-headed as he was, he would be forced to say, music may be a universal language, but what a devilish lot of dialects. End quote. This quote is particularly interesting. Although Lomax is commenting on the so-called devilish sounds, the first part of his quote shows that the phrase had started being used in everyday life. People were starting to recognise the notion that music was indeed a universal language, making reference to Sir Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. In the last 50 years, further studies have been done on the phrase, analysing its accuracy by examining its similarities and differences to actual languages around the world. There is debate about whether music fulfills the requirements of a language to be considered as such, but I don't think this is how the term was ever intended to be interpreted. In this analysis, it is clear that this term originated from writers, poets, and creatives in their own rights. One must allow an element of romanticism and creative liberty when reading and interpreting these books, poems, and passages. Longfellow and Thoreau were never intending to decipher and deconstruct the linguistic qualities of music. Rather, they were expressing music's significance to the individual, to nature, to the universe. If I were to take the phrase literally, and before conducting scientific analysis on music's linguistic capabilities, I would probably rephrase it to one of the following two options. 1. Music is universal. 2. Music is the universal language of culture. There is no debate that music is a power in the world that everyone can harness. It is a concept in the world that everyone is aware of. It is a part of the world that everyone has, does, and will continue to experience. The two alternative phrases I have just announced will be explored in this series in future. For now, the idea that music is a part of all of us is impossible to argue with. Though the historical analysis of music may be brief, it is clear that music has played an invaluable part in society's progress, at least in the last 200 years. In a world of change, doubt, loss, hurt, triumph, discovery, suffering and existence, music is eternal. Music is universal. Music is universal.